This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you've been following the news at all, I mean, even a little bit over the last number of months, there have been a number of words that have come up over and over again, but probably among the most common is hacking. We have been hearing about Russians hacking American computers, about Hillary Clinton's computer being hacked, about power grid computers being hacked, about China hacking this and Russia hacking that and on and on and on. And we all kind of, as a result, I think, understand the loose concept of what's going on. Someone has gained access to someone's computer and stolen something from inside. But I got to tell you, as I've been talking to people over the last few days, It has dawned on me that myself leading the way, but also a lot of other people get the idea of hacking, but don't really grasp or understand how it works. We just don't, I mean, if we don't really understand computers all that well, except, you know, to use it at home for email and Google searching and everything else, we don't really get how you hack or how you protect against hackers or what they can hack or how you, all that kind of stuff. So. I thought, let's, let's straighten this out because everyone's going to be hearing about this for a long, long time. So let's get someone on here who actually can explain this and help us walk through so we can be reasonably intelligent in future when we have these conversations. Well, Daniel Tobach is a cybersecurity and digital forensics expert who is CEO of Cytelligence. He joins us now, I believe, from, did I hear right, from Iceland? That's correct, Scott. Thanks what? for having me on. Uh, thanks for being here. Um, sh- should I even ask what you're doing in Iceland these days? People don't go to Iceland commonly for New Year's. Uh, unfortunately, can't really discuss that. Okay, no, fair enough. That's why it's called Cytelligence. Um, <laughs> well, let, let's let's go on with this because, as I say, I think, and I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I think a lot of people kind of have the general understanding of what hacking is, but they don't really understand how this happens, how this works, what goes on with this. So I wonder if you can, let's start at a very simple level here to try and understand this. You are in your basement or wherever you are, and you decide you are going to hack into my computer. What do you have to do in order to be able to try and hack into my computer? Definitely. Well, you know, I'll just take a step back. You know, most people's interpretation or understanding what hacking is, is basically based on Hollywood and, and various movies. Absolutely. Right? And, and, I, and I always said that really big differences is us cyber people were not as good looking. Right? <laughs> so, that's the, so that's the first thing to keep in mind. <laughs> All uh, right. But, but, but that, that's basically how everybody interprets a hack. So what's really a hack? You know, it, it goes back about 30 plus years ago when there was a bunch of smart guys out there who could communicate computer to computer via terminals and be able to access information. So it really started with something very innocent. It started about sending information and accessing another computer on another side of the world. Okay, so it all started as fun and games. What's hacking today is actually, really one of the definitions is, is the unauthorized access to somebody's computer or digital asset or data and information. That's really what hacking is, is getting somebody access to someone and their information without their authorization. That's really what hacking is. So it's essentially, it's a data version of just breaking into someone's house and stealing their television. Absolutely. I always say in the good old days, somebody comes in in somebody's house, steals a TV, runs away. Maybe there's some hostages, maybe some, some shots fired. Today, it's a very digital and quiet type crime. Okay, so now you want to, in a computer sense, you want to break into my house and steal my television, again, to use that example. How do you do that today? How do you do that? If you're sitting at home on your computer and I have my computer locked, so I have a password on it, how do you get into my computer? So you see, what most people miss today is a password is basically like having a key to your door. Okay? So that's your password, that's your key to your door, and unless somebody has your password or key, they can't get in. But as you know, in the physical world, and I'm not trying to give you an episode here out of, out of Matrix 4, but basically for somebody to get into your digital, they need access to your network. They need access to your physical machine using digital ways. So not to dump all this kind of what I call mumbo-jumbo on you, but for, even if you have a password to your computer, somebody can still through your Wi-Fi, still through the digital connection, get into your computer. Now, Unfortunately, as we evolve now, both in business and consumers, we have actually made it easier for the bad guys to access our data. 
Because in the good old days, when you would unplug your network cord connection through your 56K modem, if you remember those days, yes. you basically cut, cut the connection to your computer. So nobody was able to access it. The problem today, everybody are online, as long as they're not sleeping. And even when they're sleeping and they leave their phone on, you're still connected to a network. So you have an uninterrupted connectivity, endless uh, uninterruption to your digital devices. Okay, and so now, you, so you, okay, no, so you have this access. This is the the highway that's going to get into there. But again, you are now a hacker. How do you? And again, not to give an explanation or a lesson here, but generally as a concept, how do you find out how you are going to get into my computer? So this, the question you just asked would have been very, very simple to answer about fifteen years ago. Uh, today it would probably take about two and a half hours and a couple of diagrams to show you, <laughs> but, uh, but, I'll gi- but I'll give you the skinny. Depending on the device that you want to penetrate, so for example, it could be a mobile device such as your phone, your tablet, something of that nature, or your computer, okay? Depending what is it that you're trying to access. So today there's really a couple, really three main ways you can access somebody's information. You can do what we call a brute force penetration, where you're actually attacking the actual machine. You, but for that, you need to know the location of the machine, uh, potential IP address it's using, and something. So it's something a little bit more personal. It's a little bit more focused. Okay? Another, another type of an attack is when you send somebody uh, a very directed and targeted malware or virus that once they click on it, it could be a picture, you know, a little cat waving to you, but it could have it could have a mal- malware installed embedded in that image or joke or video that you're going to play on your computer because it came from you know from John Smith and that's your friend. You click on it, you play it. Now your computer is infected with a backdoor Trojan or malware that can give somebody actually a keylogger of what you're typing, your password. Everything that you're doing on your computer can be watched, you know, uh, fifty thousand miles away from you. Okay, and the third way of actually attacking again goes back to the malware, but it's not focused. This is when you go and view free type images on the web, free videos, appropriate or not appropriate. But basically, they lower you, lower you in there when you watch and you click yes, I'm over 18 and blah blah blah. You just infected your machine, and that's why it's like downloading music in illegal sites and pirated videos. Those are all infected with certain parts of uh, malware and viruses in them. You just gave somebody the key to your door. That's, that's where a lot of people not realizing that, you know, in a physical way, you can look at your door and see that it's locked. But because what you're doing online, you actually gave somebody permission to view at your data. Okay, and Daniel, and so that's that I understand, and, and I think most people would for your home computer, because people, again, have looked at YouTube videos or looked at whatever they've got, emails that they've clicked on and they've allowed something in. That I think we can all get that. But what we're talking about now with the news stories we've been reading are hacks of either government computers or government networks, government systems, or computers of people involved in government. And you would think that that would require a far, far higher level of sophistication to get in. Does it, or is it still just as simple? So it does take sophistication. What you know we refer to as the human factor in cyber is, is the biggest problem here. So I'll give you just a perfect example, a regular day. You have a law enforcement agent who has been trained and briefed on online security and so on and so on. While he's at work, he's in a secure perimeter, he's in the castle, you know, there is no information that can penetrate him because there's a million firewalls, blah, 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 blah. Okay, he goes home, and he, his, him and, his, uh, him and his, one of his children are watching a video that the child downloaded on the net. And he's, the father's like, hey, can you send me that joke? I want to send it to the guys in the office. He sends him the joke. Now his computer can be infected. He brings that computer to work or his phone or anything, connects on the Wi-Fi or uses it to send somebody, bingo, it's inside the network. So it's not a matter of penetrating those very, what I call, powerful and strong security sense organizations like a bank and government and law enforcement and so on. It always comes down to the human factor. We as humans, when we interact, everything that we carry has a certain risk to it. Now, I'll be very upfront. I'm not saying this for everybody to completely be paranoid and, and, and walk around, you know, like the, everybody are trying to steal their secrets. But the point is we got to have some common sense and understand that with mobile devices, we're carrying basically a small computer in our pocket that has a lot of data, a lot of data about us, 
right? We just have to be cautious how we share it. Okay, now, the next interesting thing I find is, and I understand, again, what you're just saying there, where how you could bring something in that would open the door. However, if I am Julian Assange or someone, WikiLeaks, or some group that is trying to target a particular computer, because I know, or a network, because I know there is information on, let's say it was yours, Daniel, let's say I knew that on your particular computer there was something I wanted to see, how do I, as the hacker... I'm not in the building where your computer is. I don't necessarily even know which computer you're using. How do I target your particular computer? Because we know with the Hillary Clinton leaks that were coming out all through the campaign, they were going after John Podesta, her chief of staff's particular emails. How do they target a particular computer? Because what you talked about before was kind of accidental. Someone brings it in and opens the door. How do they know where to go? So again, when some and we we deal with lots of celebrities again and, and various people and so on that you know they are targets. So those people are actually are easier to find than somebody that nobody knows and and you know he's mysteriously in a coffee shop. He's using free Wi-Fi and they get on his computer. So when there is what I call people that are at a certain level that are being targeted, it's actually easier because it's a focused mission. They will look for them. It starts with addresses. They could drive by their house, basically try to hack their Wi-Fi. So it's about research. Now, I'll say this. If you look at any person that is out there, you know, 90% of the population, you know, what I call it, a certain celebrity status, has a Twitter, has a Facebook, has this, has that. There are certain things you can do to find their identity very, very quickly. I mean, for God's sakes, we have people who post every single second what they had for lunch and what <laughs> they had. You're it right. wouldn't be very difficult to find them, right? You're right. I, 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 did, a conference, I did a conference a couple of years ago which talked about espionage and things of like that. And, you know, I kept getting questions. Is, why is the government spying on everybody? What is this? What is that? And, you know, I, I, and again, I, I don't represent the government, but I, had, I made a statement to them. I said, nobody has to spy on nobody. You're volunteering all the information as it is. And, you know, it's, it, it just, it's funny whether it resonates with you. We publicize so much information about us. So could a government then, and we've heard a lot about, you know, the Russians impacted the election, or they could have, or, you know, we, there's arguments for or against whether they did or not. Could a foreign government, could a person, if a government is using, because we've heard a lot that people want to go to online voting down the road, could a person then hack into a government computer and literally vote multiple times, put more ballots? Is it as simple as that? Could you hack potentially into a government computer and that directly impact an election? So I I will say this, and there's really two sides to this. Number one, is there a possibility in terms of expertise, knowledge, a physical possibility to do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, There's definitely a way to hack into the systems and manipulate data and, you know, vote for people that are not even alive anymore and so on and so on. Okay, just like you can do voter fraud today, but it's just in a physical way. So absolutely, you can do it. And we have been a part of several of those investigations before. Now, here's here's the reality of it. Is it easy? No. Is it is it just somebody can just get do it off the street? No, this definitely has to be expertise, definitely has to be knowledge. It's something that can take years to 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 investigate, analyze, create a strategy and so on. Can a state sponsored attack be behind something of that caliber? Absolutely. Not because they're just the big bad wolf, it's because they have resources. And all of this comes down to resources. It does sound, I mean, someone like me, even if I sit down and put my effort into it, in, as you say, in the next couple of years, I'm not going to figure out how to do this. There have to be people who are pretty experienced at this to be able, but there are, but by the sounds of it, there are lots of people out there who could figure this kind of thing out. There are lots of people who understand this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, should we then be scared, whether it's for governments, whether it's for big things like elections or that, or even, as you say, for hacking our home computer, should we be worried about this stuff or by and large, our computer's pretty safe and, you know, it's not going to happen all that often? You know, I'll tell you, I I don't like to freak anybody out, but unfortunately, it's not as rosy as everybody thinks. Uh, You know, with with where we're going in society, everybody wants what I call e-life, right, an electronic life. So they want to be able to do everything and anything from feeding Fido to drones delivering food to voting to everything. (laughs) Now, there's, there's, there's of course, a positive thing to this in terms of convenience and and, and beauty and modern, and we're all very cool and we live in the future. Uh, But there's always a price to pay for this. I feel that we're still at that immaturity level 
we still need some time to grasp all this technology. That if you really think about it, it's only been around for 15 to 20 years. That's a very short period in our, in our cycle as evolution. Uh, you know, we got to take an example of Estonia. Estonia was one of the first countries in the world to have what we call e-government, which is you can renew your driver license online, you can vote online, you can do everything online. The problem with that, and I've had a very interesting meeting with the former ambassador to Estonia about this a couple of years ago, all of that was hunky-dory. But guess what? And this was proven to be Russia. But when, when the Russians you know, had some kind of a dispute with them and they completely blacked out, nobody was able to do anything for three days. And I mean, that, that was in almost crisis mode in Estonia. Right, so I, I have to let you, you go. There's, there's a good. I have to let you go in 30 seconds. But last question: Would you? And you are the expert in this. You know how to deal with this. You know how to protect yourself. But do you put everything online, or are you very selective about the kinds of things that you put up on social media or you put on the internet for people to be able to find? I always say, don't put online what you don't want somebody else to discover. It's really that simple. It's like going to a casino and losing your lunch money. If you can't afford it, don't go there. Right? So. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Daniel Tobak, <laughs> the uh, CEO of Cytelligence. We could do this for two hours, and I would be learning every minute we did this. Daniel, I appreciate it. Enjoy Iceland. I, I hope Iceland is not as cold as it sounds this time of year. Uh, it's pretty cold, but it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> Daniel, thank, thank you for, for your time. Uh, I, I hope that helped. I, I hope that some of that help to clarify. Because again, uh, we hear these words, but we don't necessarily know what they mean. We talk about them in conversation and we don't necessarily know what they mean. I, I hope that helps a little bit to understand. And I hope if you take nothing else from that, myself included, we take that last line, that if there's something that you would not want someone to know about you, it shouldn't be online. Because somehow, some way, someone could get that. If you have pictures, if you have information, if you have whatever, and you don't want, if you would be traumatized or mortified by someone getting a copy of those, they probably shouldn't be online. Take them down. Even though there's still going to be a footprint probably left by now. Take it as a lesson. Don't put them up there again in the future. Interesting stuff. Scary, but interesting. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let me bring... Jamie West into the conversation. Jamie is not just the president, CEO, and all other titles that you wish to apply to West Pro Media, but he is also the executive producer of the show. And most importantly, why we have him on for this segment right now is because he is a father, he is a stepfather, he is a guy who has been around kids and knows the challenges. Jamie, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, happy New Year, Scott. Happy New Year to you as well. So let me, before we get to what we're going to talk about, I'm going to, you don't know what I'm actually asking you yet, so I'm going to throw it out to you in a complete wide open statement. What do you think is the biggest mistake that parents make, generally? Oh, what do you I think is the one thing we do wrong more often than not? Um, I think, and this is a pretty general uh, thing, there's a lot of tentacles that will come off of this octopus, but I think the biggest mistake that parents make today is that they abdicate the hard work of parenting to everyone else, including teachers, uh, karate instructors, dance instructors, hockey coaches, and those million screens that we have in the house. So you bail out on the hard stuff. That's what I think. I think that parents have stopped uh and, and I don't think this is a new thing. I think this is go. I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday, oddly enough, about how far back this abdication of doing the hard parenting work in favor of trying to win a popularity contest or be the friend of your son or daughter. Ding, 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 ding. Hot dog, we have a wiener. This is what, according to Leonard Sachs, who is an author, a family physician, a psychologist, he has written a bunch of books, and he says that the biggest mistake that we make over and over and over again, and I guess it's always happened, but we uh, today seem to be doing it an awful lot more, apparently, is that we are treating our kids as friends and colleagues and yep. equals. And here's what he says. He goes, most American parents, and I'm going to put Canadian in there because I don't really think there's a whole lot of a difference in how we're doing this. Most Canadian slash American parents are completely confused and going utterly in the wrong direction, he said. There is a collapse of understanding 
of what parenting involves. And as we lead into this, let me give you the example that he gives in his book that he wrote. He basically gives the example of a six-year-old child who was taken to the doctor by mom, uh, and the doctor, the child had a sore throat. So when they go to the doctor's office, the doctor says, next, I'm going to take a look at your throat. The mother then turns to the kid and says, asking the child's permission, do you mind if the doctor looks in your throat for just a second, honey? Afterwards, we can go and get some ice cream. At which point he used the example and he says, this happened. The doctor, the child says, no, you're not going to do that. And they had to pin the child down to be able to do it. So it's not telling the child who is the boss and not, not in an aggressive or offensive or bullying way. Just you're the adult, you're the parent. Here's what's happening. Yeah. It's the, the guy's right on the money. I, I mean, this is something I, I t- I talked about this on various talk shows that I've hosted filling in for hosts on CHML for several years um, about how parents are, uh, clearly trying to win popularity contests. And I don't know where that first developed. I think that it kind of developed after, I I think my generation, I'm 50 years old now, I think it was whatever parents that came right after our generation really launched into this thing. I'm not saying that my generation uh, isn't doing that as well, but it seems to have gotten worse with the generations that have come uh, afterwards, and the guy's right on the money. Uh, the the kids are now in control of everything. He and says the hierarchy of parent over child no longer exists. And here's another no. quote: Parents, he says, are incapable of speaking to their children in a sentence that ends in a period. Every sentence ends in a question mark. It's it, that's true, and and part of it is because, and, and I don't, I don't know what you're going to throw at me next <laughs> from this report, but. Uh, I think I'm on the right track here. Uh, We have been inundated with so much free, useless advice from so many useless book writers and pop psychologists and uh, self-declared experts of all sorts, whether they be um, in the field of academia, whether they be in the the field of television uh, experts, parenting experts, these people that, have, that call themselves experts on all of these things, shoving all kinds of stuff at us. And it's all about you cannot let Janie or Johnny feel anything that's remotely negative emotionally. Right. If your time. self-esteem is damaged, it's the worst thing you can do to a kid. Exactly. That's, that's what we've been fed. And that's the biggest guilt trip that's ever been put upon adult human beings and it's also a load of crapola it's an absolute absolute load of crapola we are failing miserably to teach kids how to become independent and and it starts with things like having them teaching them how to fall asleep on their own they gain self-esteem from being able to accomplish basic human things like being able to fall asleep on their own Stories, a litany of stories written about how parents will lay down with their kids for hours and hours and hours trying to get the kid to settle for four or five hours a night till both of you are asleep in the same bed, which is exactly what the kid wants. But that doesn't serve the child very well. But you'll have a whole bunch of people say, no, that's wonderful because it's bonding and all of that baloney. It's baloney. Well, it, it just seems that we have a very difficult time now, and, and I don't know how many generations this has been going on for or where it actually started. I'm with you. I don't really know where it started, but we don't like to be the bad guy. We don't, and I don't, and, and listen, I love my parents. My parents were fantastic parents, but I don't recall them ever having trouble saying no. Yeah, I don't. And, I, and when I got in trouble, I got in trouble. There, there was no, uh, well, sort of, you know, we, we, you're in trouble, but not really. And believe me, I, was, I always knew that, heaven forbid, the police ever bring me home. If I ever came home in a cop car, the cop was not going to get chewed out for arresting me. Or if I got right. in trouble at school, the teacher was not going to get in trouble for giving me a suspension. I was screwed. There's another side to this thing uh, um, in terms of, you know, we talked about how, how the, the advice, the free advice has been. You don't want to do anything that creates a negative emotion in the child or, you know, hurts or stunts their self-esteem. There are two different things. 
you know, having a negative emotion doesn't necessarily damage your self-esteem. It can actually increase it because there's a lesson to be learned sometimes with that. But the other side of that coin is that we, I say the royal we as, as the new generation of parents, we don't want to feel any negative huh. emotion ourselves. Huh. We're, not, we're not willing to walk through the ring of fire to do the tough job because it doesn't feel good to us. And the newer generations of adults, we got to feel good all the time, Scott. We have to feel wonderful about ourselves all the time. And if we don't feel good because we've had to, uh, you know, uh, meet out some sort of a, a lesson uh, to our kids, we've had to say no, like you pointed out earlier. We've had to say no. It doesn't feel good to, to, to say no to your kids. It doesn't feel good to have to hold them accountable for mistakes they've made. So... We just have decided we're not doing it. There is a great scene that I recall from the Cosby show. Now, of course, we know what's gone on with Bill Cosby since then, and that's ir- that's irrelevant to the topic right now. And it was a great yeah. scene with he, with uh, Bill Cosby and Theo. And Theo was in trouble. His son was in trouble for something, and he was in the bedroom, and the two of them are talking. People may remember this one. And he then goes on to give this very sob-worthy thing about how difficult it's been and how he's having trouble at school and his friends and blah, blah, blah. And you expect you know what the answer is going to be because it's always the answer. It's dad is going to be all warm and understanding and give him a break. And Bill Cosby, as the dad, Cliff Huxtable, says, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Deal with it. (laughs) We would never ever say that today. And what really blows me away, Jamie, is that when I read you that little bit at the beginning, that example that the doctor gave here from the doctor's office, I don't think that there is probably anyone listening or who would ever hear that that would not blanch at that and go, oh, that's, you know, come on, mom, that's ridiculous. And yet when we hear it, we say it's crazy, but then we go and do the exact same thing. But that's what we have. On, that's, what we, that's what we have now. And, and, and a lot of this, Scott, in my opinion, is about how, how the parents are perceived by other parents. Don't think that they're not trying to win an image popularity contest among other parents. Like this, They're out there trying desperately to look like they're the best parents in the world to other parents, right? And so they, this stuff kind of spreads. And they hear, oh, uh, Janie and, uh, you know, Johnny's mother lets them do this, lets them do that. Well, I guess I better do that, too. Or, uh, you know, my kids aren't going to like me. They're not going to love me. Um, It's all parents are so afraid of their kids pulling their love from them uh, unless they're given everything they want. It's the most insane thing. This doctor's 100 percent right, because what's going to end up happening is you're going to get this big backlash. When the kid grows up, they're going to say, at some point, if, if they're if you're lucky and they turn out well, they're going to say, you know, you didn't give me you didn't give me enough boundaries. And, and or conversely, if they turn out not so well and have a bunch of issues, even though you won every popularity contest and you gave them everything they wanted and every material thing and every emotional thing, in the end they might turn on you and say, you know what, you didn't set any boundaries for me. You but let is, me get away with things. I didn't learn anything from your mom. Thanks for nothing. But Jamie, isn't that kind of with a lot of people? And I, and again, I, I was talking earlier in the show. I sound like an old man. I'm going to sound like an old man again. But isn't that kind of what we're dealing with in some cases today with young adults who have grown up with this being told you can have you can you can be whatever you want to be. No one's going to tell you. Uh, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, you can always get a trophy when you play soccer, even if you finished yeah. in last place. Uh, you are special. You are entitled, as you say. And I look around, and you know, it's a political thing, I know. I'm not trying to make a political argument. But we have people who have, since the U.S. election, whether you love Donald Trump or are terrified of Donald Trump is irrelevant, because since the election, it was a Democratic election, and people are protesting the election... All right, you had a chance to vote, and I'm looking at this as one example. You lost, but they don't know how to deal with losing. They've never lost. No one's ever told them you can't have your way yeah. before. And so yeah. what am I going to do? Well, I, I have to riot. I have to protest. There's got to be some way that I can overturn this because I'm allowed to have what I want. Yeah, the, the, the uh, stamping of the, of the feet and the, you know, the pounding of the fists is, is there, the tantruming. Uh, that's, what you, that's what you create out of this because you mom or you dad 
has just decided that you don't want to feel any negative emotion. It's more important for you to win a popularity contest than than to do the hard work of parenting, which means having tough discussions, which means having critical thought, which means talking about morals with your kids, which means uh, doing uh, the right thing, even when it's the hard thing uh, to do, um, and setting those examples, and actually, uh, you know, again, um, living your life a little bit like that, instead of just saying, well, I've got a couple of kids. I don't really have to change uh, the way I live now that I have kids. I'll keep living the way I did before I have kids. Uh Uh-uh. You can't do that. When you have kids, you have to think about everything you do. That's the deal. That's what you signed on for. And the kids didn't ask to be born, and people need to remember that. Your kids didn't ask to be born. You brought them into the world, and you have a responsibility to see them through and, and raise them up as, as good human beings and, and give them the tools that they, they need. I know that sounds like a sermon, but it's the truth. Well, and I know that I know that neither you nor I are going to actually take the position that we've done this perfectly. Um, no, no. I know, well, actually, I know you have. I haven't. I, you know, there are things that I've done wrong. Um, no, I haven't. The doctor says here, uh, parents should focus on helping children. Here's what he says. Develop skills such as self-control, humility and conscientiousness, meaning they think of people other than themselves. Those things, he says, are the biggest predictors of future success in adulthood, not education or affluence. And now that's where I find that this whole thing really becomes interesting. We just have a minute left here, but we have heard now forever, for, for years now, that every child needs to be able to have a university education. And I'm not belittling a university education, but you can't get ahead unless you have a university education. You can't be a good human. And if and all the people who had advantages, everyone else, it must be entirely fair. We know the world can't be a fair place. But what he's saying is those things are important. But to be a good human and to be a successful person, those are far less important than learning self-control, right. humility, and conscientiousness. He, he, he's right. Social skills um, and, and, and life skills, um, if they're absent in the face of a Ph.D., good luck to you. You've got a Ph.D. and you've got no social skills and no life skills. You're not going to make it. It's, uh, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating thing. If people want to go look it up, his name is Daniel, sorry, Leonard Sachs, S-A-X. There are numerous stories online on Google about him and about his ideas, and you can read stuff by him. Leonard Sachs. Uh, his book is, one of his books, Boys Adrift and Girls on the Edge, two different books. Uh, also, col- The Collapse of Parenting, How We Hurt Our Kids When We Treat Them Like Grown-Ups. Uh, Jamie, appreciate it, sir. Happy New Year. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Scott. Great topic, and uh, this guy's smart. Thanks, Scott. That is uh, Jamie West, who is a father, who is a stepfather, who's been up and down this road, as I have. Um, it, you know, it's a, it's a really tough one. I think anyone listening who's got kids or had kids understands. I do, certainly. I've failed in certain times in this, for sure, how easy it is to want to be the good guy. And I find it really interesting that when it comes right down to it, that he says, that this doctor says, who's written this book, and I agree with him, helping kids develop skills such as self-control, humility, and conscientiousness are the biggest predictors of future success in adulthood, not education or affluence, which doesn't mean you don't send them to school, you don't encourage them to go to university, you don't do everything you can for them, but you don't do everything for them. There's a difference between doing everything you can to help them and doing everything for them and being their buddy. I just, I find the whole thing very fascinating because we've moved so far, it seems, away from this in our society, in our life, in our civilization. We've moved so far away from the parenting that our parents or our parents' parents had, which wasn't perfect. No one's suggesting it was perfect. This is a moving target at times. We try to improve on things, but it seems to me anyway, the pendulum in a lot of cases has swung too far. We've gone from fathers and a lot of cases, fathers, not always, but from fathers who aren't really involved to fathers who were way too involved from mothers who maybe wanted to not be friends to mothers who want to be best friends. We want our kids to like us, don't we? Of course we do, but we don't necessarily need to be like that. Anyway, go read it. Leonard Sachs, S-A-X. Fascinating stuff online. You can read from him. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML.
We have produced a lot of good football players in this town over the years. And if you were to look at NCAA or Canadian University basketball rosters over the years, not pro, but basketball rosters at a pretty high level, you would find an awful lot of people from this city who have made those teams. And if you look at the NHL these days or the AHL, there are quite a few people from the Hamilton area who are making their way in professional hockey. Quite a few, in fact. Soccer. We're, we're starting to do much, much better soccer. But go on and on down the list. There's lots of people. Mixed martial arts, boxing, on and on and on. We have produced great athletes from this city. But you want to know something? The sport that we may have produced the most pro athletes, at least right now, currently, is one that I'm guessing you probably don't think about all that often. Because we just don't watch a whole lot of lacrosse around this area. We don't. It's just reality. But there are 18 players from Hamilton, Burlington, Six Nations, this area, that are presently on the nine National Lacrosse League teams. That's an average of two a team. That is a remarkable thing for a city, again, that just doesn't really pay all that close attention to the sport. Well, Joey Capito is a defender with the Colorado Mammoth of the National Lacrosse League. Uh, He joins me now. Joey, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Listen, I'm looking at these numbers. I'm looking at the the amount of players that are coming out of this area, and I can't help but wondering, when did we become so good at this? Because it seemed to sneak up on us. You know, I was kind of wondering that myself. Uh, growing up for myself, I know my age especially, and a couple of years above, we've had really good minor teams, and the same guys playing all the way up. Uh, there's two junior A teams locally, uh, one in Six Nations, one by in... Burlington as well. Hamilton just got a junior B team as well uh, within the last 10 years. So lacrosse is definitely on the rise in the city. It's one of the fastest growing sports across the country, but in terms of population and the amount of new people joining the sport each summer. But in Hamilton, we've always had a pretty strong back down here. It's always been uh, seen kind of as a lacrosse center in the last few years. It's really taken off. Okay, and yet, and I'll get to that in a minute, but yet when I look at the history of lacrosse in this city, we had at one time the Ontario Raiders. They were an indoor lacrosse team, a box lacrosse team. They went on to become the Toronto Rock, but when they were here playing at then Cops Coliseum, they failed miserably with crowds. And then we had an outdoor team a couple of years ago, and nobody showed up. So how can we be so good at this game and have so many people involved in this game and yet not really appreciate the game? Because it seems like we don't. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, from a fan's perspective. Lacrosse is a fantastic sport, uh, a great spectator sport. If you come to a live game, it's fast, it's physical. Uh, the atmosphere is electric. They're playing music the whole time, so it really is an experience. But uh, when you look at the actual marketing in the media, a lot of people don't really know about it or, or hear of it, uh, if you will. If they actually go down and experience it firsthand, most of the people I talk to say they fall in love with it and they're going to come back buy season tickets, but it's that initial exposure that's kind of lacking right now. There's no major TV deal uh, across Canada and the USA, and really most of what you're seeing across the markets is really only in the local paper, so it doesn't always necessarily get picked up. You talked about the fact that there are a lot of people playing around here. Is it is it really growing? Are there a lot of leagues? Are there a lot of kids? Because that's where you really, when you talk about growing a game, not just to produce the pros, but to get people watching, that's where it starts from. Are there a lot of kids playing the game? Absolutely there are. And it's not just Hamilton. It's across Ontario, across Canada, and even into the United States. It's actually taking off. And they see more and more kids uh, veering away from football and traditional sports, if you will. And a lot of people playing lacrosse. I mean... Uh, I'm fortunate enough to play down in Denver, Colorado, and I can tell you it's insane down there, the amount of kids that, that come and that tell me they play lacrosse. Uh, we have very good crowds down there, upwards of 16,000, 17,000 in the Pepsi Center. Uh, the University uh, of Denver is actually the defending national champions down there. It's taken off at the high school level, getting really competitive. Uh, when you look locally here, more and more kids are joining each summer. We've started more initiatives in terms of running camps, uh, visits to schools to help promote the sport, gain it some exposure. And again, it's one of those sports, once you pick up a stick, a lot of kids are falling in love with it. A lot of those hockey players who don't necessarily uh, have anything to do in the summer or don't want to play winter hockey are turning towards it. Uh, and it really is taking off. Do people know you? Like when you, you're, you play pro, so if you show up at a minor lacrosse game here, or even down in Denver, but wherever you go where you, where you might be expected to be known, do people know Joey Capito? A lot of times they will. I mean, lacrosse, we're a pretty tight-knit community. Uh, people tend to know, especially if I'm wearing a, a mammoth shirt or 
something like that. I've had times down in Denver where, I, you know, I'll go to the store even at the airport and people will recognize me and, you know, want to take a picture, have me sign an autograph, something like that. So it's a pretty cool feeling. But uh, around Hamilton Lacrosse, I would say more so. Um, I helped coach a, a couple teams in the summer, and uh, I was the coach at one point of the Junior B team here. So just being around and getting to meet people and know these players and trying to learn some of the names of the younger ones growing up as well definitely helps too. Here's the funny thing, and you just touched on it about lacrosse, I think, is that I have heard over the years so many times people saying, whether it was Wayne Gretzky or Brendan Shanahan or whoever else, they say, yeah, you know what, lacrosse really helped them with their sport, whether it was hockey or whatever else. I can't remember the last time I heard someone say, yeah, playing baseball really helped me with my lacrosse. Why is it that lacrosse is always the stepping stone to some other sport? Well, it's incredibly fast and involves so much athleticism and hand-eye coordination. I mean, imagine trying to save a shot at 100 miles per hour, trying to pick off a pass or hit someone moving full speed. It really has all those aspects all in one. I know for me personally, uh, having played football at McMaster cornerback, a lot of the things uh, I would do on the lacrosse for are very similar to being a defensive back in football in terms of timing, anticipation, footwork, and things like that. So I really think it translates over, especially for hockey players, in terms of the hand-eye, in terms of the conditioning aspect. There's a lot of uh, similarities between the two sports as but, well. But are you seeing people, I guess, are you seeing people, in the past it's always been, I'm using lacrosse to help me get better at my other sport, my main sport. Are you seeing people leave those other sports now to come and take up lacrosse and make lacrosse their main sport? To be honest with you, I, I see it a lot more in the States. Uh, right now a lot of players playing field lacrosse down there that is their main sport and a lot of them who told me they played football in high school but then stopped to focus on lacrosse ncaa lacrosse is huge down there right now it's games are picked up on espn the final four is usually at football stadiums get sold out uh they get 60 70 thousand there it's nationally followed so it's a lot bigger there in canada we're still in a bit of a transition obviously hockey's going to dominate uh, in the winter, but uh, more and more kids are, are getting a taste of lacrosse, and the ones who are falling in love with it play year-round. They play winter leagues and always have the stick in their hands, so it certainly is growing, but not quite there yet. Part of the other thing, too, is, I mean, you, I'm sure, as a pro, would love it not to be so, but it, it's still not a big-money sport. You're not getting rich off of this. No, we're, I mean, we're making a couple bucks, and they're taking care of our expenses, but we do it because we love the game, we love playing, and you know, it's a nice perk to kind of get to travel around North America doing what we love. But that my point is, if you are a guy who is really good at lacrosse and really good at hockey to the point where you think you might have a chance at a pro career, if I'm just looking at bottom line, it makes a lot more sense for me to stick with hockey because if I ever could make it to the NHL, I'm making a lot more there than I ever would in the NLL. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, you see that a lot with our league as well. I have tons of teammates, tons of guys in the league who played very high-level hockey. They played junior uh, junior A, OHL, some guys who played professionally in Europe even, but those kind of guys who played all the way through back and forth in terms of winter and summer and guys who just quite couldn't uh, make that jump to the NHL and came to play lacrosse after. But, uh, but I agree with your point completely. It's a, obviously a lot different dynamic when you're talking millions and millions of dollars. So explain how this works then, because you live in Hamilton. I mean, you're living here during the week, but you play for Colorado. Uh, first of all, what do you do for practices? Well, for our team, it's just a weekend thing. Uh, so essentially, they'll fly me out. Uh, we have our home openers this weekend in Denver, Colorado. I'm going to be flying out Friday afternoon to that. We'll have a practice Friday night when I get there. Um, Saturday, we'll do a shoot-around at the arena, uh, have some film, some chalk talk, a little bit of a walkthrough, go over the scouting report, uh, and then we play Saturday night, and then we're back home by Sunday afternoon. So it's kind of bang-bang, you know, a, a lot of lacrosse in a very limited amount of time, but allows us to be here during the week, allows people to be flexible so that they can work other jobs and uh, kind of have a life outside of the lacrosse. Is there anybody in the league right now who would be living off their lacrosse full-time? And I don't mean with other coaching or things, but just play in playing. Is there anyone who can make a living at it? There are, there are certain players. And I mean, truthfully, guys are probably making enough where that they could do it uh, in season and probably make enough to live off of. But, you know, there's a few leagues now. The National Lacrosse League is the indoor league. Uh, there's the Major Series League in the summer, which is the semi-pro league in Canada. Uh, the Outdoor League, the MLL, which is the Professional Field Lacrosse League. So you see a lot of players kind of playing in all three. Uh, and cumulatively, there are a few who, who just do that. There are some who have endorsements uh, with companies like Under Armour, Brian, STX, who are making uh, money like that. A lot of guys who are teaching 
and working camps like that as well. So they're full-time lacrosse players. But for the ones who are just playing in the NLL, the majority have second jobs. Can you see, though, can you see a time, can you see then enough growth in this right now that in your lifetime, in your career lifetime, I mean, that you could see a day when you could make a living off this, a comfortable living, or is that still a ways down the, down the path? Uh, it depends. We just got a new commissioner in last year who, uh, I can't remember his last name, well, not that I can't remember, I can't pronounce it, but he was a former commissioner <laughs> of uh, the, the uh, MLS for soccer, and he's done some wonderful things already. We have a new logo coming out this year. He's talking about expansion with a few cities. I think the biggest issue with lacrosse, truthfully, uh, is that there's no stable media deal across mm. the league. And, you know, you see that between certain teams. The ones who are very successful are the ones with those NHL partnerships. For example, our owner is uh, Stan Kroenke, who owns everything down in the city of Denver, uh, including the Pepsi Center, the arena we play in, and the local TV deal. So we do very well financially. We're one of the best in the league in terms of attendance. We have the luxury that we can make money to afford uh, the media and the exposure. But we need, I think, something across the league, maybe a deal with TSN or ESPN. Right now, we do usually have a game of the week on TSN throughout the winter, throughout the season. That features typically the Canadian teams, Toronto Rock, Calgary Roughnecks, Saskatchewan Rush, things like that. But in order for the league to grow, obviously we need some kind of uh, CBA and deal where we have that mass marketing and that media, because that's where all the other leagues truthfully make most of their money. Well, and you probably are of the age when you were growing up as a young kid playing. You were, I mean, the Toronto Rock at one time were... I don't want to say they're not now, but they were a huge deal. They were winning all the time, and they were on TV, and they had a full house at Maple Leaf Gardens or the Air Canada Centre. It was it was different than it is now, and, and the big thing about that was just the amount of exposure. Everybody knew about the Toronto Rock. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not that they don't know anymore, but... But it's different. I, it, it is different. And like I said, Colorado, I, I believe we came in the league in 2003, uh, and with a great ownership group, that helps. Toronto doesn't have the luxury anymore. Uh, of partnering with the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's an independent owner uh, who's done very well. He's very passionate, very committed to the sport and the league. But obviously it's more of a financial burden that way. Whereas if you look at a team like Buffalo, for example, uh, they are partnered with the Sabres. And we actually just had our season opener there last weekend where we were very lucky to come away with a win. Uh, But there was about 15,000 fans there. And it was a very electric crowd, great atmosphere. And they're one of the teams that does a very good job in terms of marketing and things like that. It, do, it, it does to me seem very funny that it's such a struggle, though, because, I mean, even though, you know, we call it our national sport, it is our national sport, but that only goes so far. That doesn't mean automatically people are going to know it. it. But it does seem to me to be a surprise that it's such a, such a hard thing to get people out. I remember covering the first game of the Outdoor League. I know it's different, but the one in Hamilton that we had a few years ago, and I couldn't believe how few people actually came out for this. And I thought what you've been telling me was absolutely true, and I believe it. There are a lot of people playing lacrosse in the city. It just, for whatever reason, bridging the gap between playing and watching hasn't fully happened yet. Yeah, and I, I think part of that is because of the coverage. I mean, it's so sporadic, especially in certain markets. Like, even when you look at uh, in the spec, every once in a while they'll post the standings for the NLL, but you don't really see any articles about it ever. And across TSN, they might show a championship game or an incredible highlight play, but beyond that, there isn't enough media exposure, and that's where we're trying to get to. I know, like I said, the new commissioner uh, has big plans. He's trying to incorporate more media-friendly things to get people engaged, to get them to check it out, because, you know, once you come down to a game, like I said, you're hooked. It's such a fantastic sport. It's fast, it's physical, there's a ton of scoring, ton of hitting, you know, there's still a lot of fighting. It's it's really an old-school uh, black-and-blue sport, and, and such a great game, but it's about getting those people involved, getting them to actually experience it for themselves. You, uh, as I let you go, you did, as you said, you played uh, defensive back for McMaster during their best years ever, the Vanier Cup year and that, when um, what, what sport do you end up hurting more after, a football game or a lacrosse game? You know, people always ask me that, and I guess it depends how hard I've played. Uh, like I said, our season opener was Friday night in Buffalo, and I'm still sore after that one, but I think football... Uh, to be honest with you, is probably a greater potential to have something more uh, damaging, so to speak. But lacrosse, you get all those bumps and bruises. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar, we're allowed to whack each other with our sticks pretty much whenever we want. So 
a lot of those uh, nicks and pains all kind of accumulate. So I'm going to pick lacrosse because that's the one I'm still playing, and I remember <laughs> how far I get each and every week. Joey Capito of the Colorado Mammoth, formerly of the McMaster Marauders. Joey, appreciate the time today. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you can, If you can find Colorado Mammoth games, National Lacrosse League has a pretty good website, actually, and you can maybe find some online stuff there. You can definitely find some clips of Joey. Um it's a pretty talented guy to have been able to play football at a very high level, win a Vanier Cup, go to two more Vanier Cups, and then play lacrosse. And in fact, for a while there, he was doing it simultaneously. Not, I mean, not in the same season, but he would finish football and immediately roll into lacrosse. Not many guys have been able to do that. Luke was saying, though, and I wanted to just have Luke, because right before, in the break before we had Joey coming on, Luke, you were actually saying... Kind of the same thing I was just saying there. There was a time when the Toronto Rock were a really big deal, and that had a huge impact on interesting, as in a verb, interesting people in lacrosse. Now that they've kind of disappeared from you, we they view they don't have the TV contract. It's a lot harder to keep up with this. Yeah, because um, they when they started out, I actually didn't know. By the way, that they the team was in Hamilton for one year before it moved to Toronto, but, and it was a disaster. Yeah, uh, but. For for the 99 to 2005, seven seasons, they won five championships, and I was all in. From that time, I was nine years old till 15 years old. And they had a full house almost every game. I, I never ended up going to a game. But, but, but the atmosphere was fantastic. It, it was. was a party at the, at the arena, and it was, it was great and, to watch. And you could, you could see it. You could find it on TV. Well, that's the thing, is at that time, I don't believe in my house we had cable, which would mean... The games were on CBC. If if I remember correctly, at least some of the games, at, at least that's how I got interested in it, were on network television where I could watch them. And I was I was hooked. It was so exciting. It was like hockey, but it was somehow more exciting because, I mean, of course, that was the clutch and grab era of hockey. So it was, it was kind of boring. And there were... I think there's less players in lacrosse. I'm trying to remember because it's been a little while. I've fallen out with the sport. But, you know, I knew all the names of the Toronto Rock. I knew that their captain was Jim Veltman. And I knew that the the goalie who looked, frankly, ridiculous with his giant pads on his chest and nothing on his legs was Bob Watson. And I lived and died with that team for when they were winning the championships. And then it was around after 2005, maybe even before 2005, they stopped being on TV. And because of that, I hard stopped to keep watching. Up. It's hard to keep up with any sport when there's no way to watch them. And so let's hope that it gets back because it is, it is fantastic. I've been down to Buffalo to see a game. I've been at Toronto to see a game. It's fantastic to watch, but it's really hard to keep up with when you can't see it on TV for the average fan because not everyone's going to buy in. You need to have an opportunity to be drawn into it, and that's that's difficult. But we certainly have a lot of players coming out of this area. 18 in the National Lacrosse. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.